The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture podcast series are given live to an audience of soldiers and the public and provide insight into leadership and warfighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us tell the Army's story one soldier at a time. Our lectures often include important visuals. To view video of this lecture and many others, please visit the USAHEC channel on YouTube. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this podcast are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center. All right, ladies and gentlemen, today is May 15th, 2019. And on behalf of the director of the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center, Mr. Jeffrey Mangelsdorf, and the entire staff of the USAHEC and the U.S. Army War College, welcome to the Perspectives in Military History Lecture Series. The USAC and the U.S. Army War College sponsor the Perspective Series to provide a historical dimension to the exercise of generalship, strategic leadership, and the warfighting institutions of land power. In addition, as always, we would like to thank, uh, extend a thank you to the Army Heritage Center Foundation for their support in everything we do here to make these lectures happen. The book for today's lecture, as you saw, is on sale behind the lecture hall. All proceeds from the book sales do go to the foundation uh, and help us to continue supporting programs. So ladies and gentlemen, it is my great honor to introduce today's speaker. Dr. Robert F. Jefferson Jr. is the former director of the Africana Studies program and is now an associate professor of history at the University of New Mexico. Dr. Jefferson earned his PhD in African American history from the University of Michigan and focuses his research on, relationship, on the relationship between race, gender, and citizenship in the United States during the 20th century. He has written several books and articles about African-American soldiers, uh, including, uh, the, uh, including the William Colby Book Prize nominee, the 93rd Infantry Division in World War II and post-war America. In fact, several years ago, he came here to the AHEC to speak about that book. Tonight, he's here to speak about his new book, Brothers in Valor, Battlefield Stories of the 89 African-Americans awarded the Medal of Honor. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me give a warm USAC welcome to Dr. Robert F. Jefferson, Jr. Good evening. I'd like to thank members of the staff of, of the United States Army Heritage and Education Center for inviting me today to talk to you about my book, Brothers in Valor, Battlefield Stories of the 89 African Americans Awarded the Medal of Honor. I'd like to open with how I became interested in writing Brothers in Valor. The, the project grew out of my first book, uh, Fighting for Hope, uh, dealing with the African American soldiers of the U.S. 93rd Infantry Division in World War II and post-war America. During its research and writing, I became intrigued by the way that the U.S. Army and the American public drew connections be between questions surrounding the suitability of black GIs as fighting soldiers in the heat of battle and American citizenship. More often than not, black combat performance was, was framed or perceived through the prism of courage and bravery. But what I discovered was that black notions of valor or the, the voices of black GIs and how they define courage themselves was often missing from the equation. Not only that, but how their perceptions of these ideas changed during the course of the fighting 
of the, of, of the war were hardly considered. Since I was writing a social history about the experiences of an all-black infantry division during the war, it left little time to discuss these ideas in a larger context, but questions re regarding black courage never really left me. Th there were three, I think, three questions uh, basically that shaped my study of black Medal of Honor recipients. The first was how has the United States and the African-American community defined and recognized courage in the face of battle? The second question that intrigued me was how did basically these ideas intersect in the lives and experiences of black Medal of Honor recipients and how they were translated into action during the fighting itself. Because many of them basically walked in, I think they came into military service having these ideas about what courage meant and what valor meant, and how they basically were, how they crystallized in their actions on the battlefield, that really intrigued me. And then the third question is, how, basically, how did these ideas of bravery change over time? The notions of basically courage has changed basically from the beginning of this country to even to this present day. And I think that's something that we really need, need to understand. What I found during the research and writing of Brothers in Valor, the historical connection about basically between the, the nation's ideas about courage and African-American uh, performances in the heat of battle are as old as American democracy itself. In the heady days of the American Revolutionary War, the Continental Congress formalized the meritorious uh, process by ordering that special medals be struck for Generals George Washington, Horatio Gates, and Daniel Morgan for their distinguished action during the conflict. However, the formal medal bestowing process languished until 1847 when Congress passed legislation that expanded the United States Army during the Mexican-American War. Attached to the legislation was a writer that authorized the issuing of a certificate of merit to privates who distinguished themselves in peacetime and in war. But by the beginning of the 1860s, the, the certificate of merit had faded from public view. It's during the Civil War itself that basically discussions about bravery and courage basically resurfaced. In 1861, in fact, the meaning of, uh, the means of uh, immortalizing the acts or the feats of heroism by American military uh, personnel was so, very much in a state of flux as the nation stood at the water's edge of the Civil War. At the beginning of the Civil War, members of Congress held a series of discussions about ways in which official Washington could recognize acts of bravery performed by soldiers, sailors, and Marines during the fighting. The Senate Naval Committee basically introduced a bill to, pre to present a token of appreciation to petty officers, seamen, landsmen, and the Marines who distinguished themselves during the hostilities. Passed by both houses of Congress, and approved by President Abraham Lincoln in December of 1861, the Medal of Honor was created for the Navy. Now, around the same time, Massachusetts Senator Henry Wilson introduced a resolution creating a similar badge of gallantry for the Army. 
The measure was signed into law on June 12, 1862. The measure called for the Medal of Honor to be awarded to such non-commissioned officers and privates as shall most distinguish themselves by their gallantry in action and other soldier-like qualities during the present insurrection. And within months of that passage, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton began to bestow medals to soldiers and sailors who performed acts of bravery during the battles of 1863. But for the 89 black soldiers who appear in, in Brothers of, in Valor, the courageous actions they, actions they took on the field of battle carried a, a dual purpose, a chance to prove their manhood and also to stake definite claims to first-class American citizenship. And I wanted to, in this book, basically present them as flesh and blood human beings whose self-defined thoughts about and also acts of bravery during war reflected the rich, multifaceted, multi-layered dimensions of the African-American experience and the American tortured saga of race in this country. Just a few statistics I just want to throw out to you, so that just to give you a, an idea as to where these individuals stand in this whole pageantry of the nation. For instance, of the 3,470 uh, Medal of Honor recipients, African-Americans make up 2.5% of that total. Now, most of these basically were, were bestowed upon them during some of the heaviest fighting of, in this country's past. 25 were bestowed during the, the Civil War, uh, 18 during the Indian Wars, and also 20 during, basically, during the Vietnam War. And also, to keep in mind, for, for the Marine Corps, James Anderson, he was the first black Marine to receive the Medal of Honor, and this occurred during the Vietnam War. So just to give you an idea of just the scope, the statistical scope of, of what I'm talking about. So what follows are some of the life's history examples of how complicated this story has been for this nation. In the opening pages of Brothers in Valor, I present the story of William Carney. Carney is right there on the screen for you. And the July 1863 Battle of Fort Wagner, uh, South Carolina. Carney basically grew up in slavery and freedom. His mother and father basically worked as slaves in Hampton Roads, the Hampton Roads region of Norfolk, Virginia, for decades prior to the Civil War. During the, the, the late 1850s, young William and his parents used the Underground Railroad to successfully escape through Maryland, Pennsylvania, and New York before eventually ending up in New Bedford, Massachusetts. After the first shots were fired at Fort Sumter, Kearney flocked to the colors like many young African Americans, only to basically be told his services were not required. But in January of 1863, Kearney basically gained his chance following the Emancipation Proclamation, joining the newly formed 54th Massachusetts Regiment, the unit that basically holds the distinction of being the first northern black regiment to fight in the Civil War. In July of 1863, they received orders to lead a, a, an attack on Fort Wagner, South Carolina, as the lead 
element of the Union assault. Fort Wagner basically rings, it has a legendary basically ring to it. And it held, during that time, very strategic value for Union Army and Navy commanders. As a major enemy stronghold, it rested at the strategic point in Charleston Harbor. It was composed largely of palmetto logs and also sandbags. And with that, basically, this beachhead fortification was capable of withstanding the fiercest naval bombardment and could house over 1,000 garrison troops. As Garrison, basically as Kearney and men of the 54th advanced, intense enemy shelling from the wall uh, fortification stymied their initial approach, making each advance more costly as crucial minutes stretched into hours. In the face of the withering barrage of enemy fire, Private Kearney basically dropped his rifle and seized the regimental colors when Sergeant John Wall, the unit's regimental uh, flag bearer was wounded. Carrying the flag, Kearney continued to march forward to the, the fort's entrance as his comrades fell around him. Despite himself being severely wounded in the chest, right arm, and each leg, Kearney never dropped, that, never dropped the flag. A, a soldier with another regiment offered to carry the colors, to which Kearney responded, no one but a member of my regiment should, should carry them. His fellow soldiers cheered him on, and Kearney could be heard over the overheard saying to them, boys, the old flag never touched the ground. Now, the reason why I'm bringing up this story is because it basically, it, it, the flag may have signified at that point the exact location of the front line on the battlefield, but for black troops like Kearney, basically they saw the rectangular piece of fabric as a symbol of the African-American determination to seize their freedom from the vestiges of bondage that held them for centuries. To give an inch was to relinquish their present and future claims to citizenship. The flag meant everything to them. It basically embodied their, their neighborhoods, their communities, their heritage, and they, they held it dear. Now, although the assault on Fort Wagner was deemed a failure, news about the outstanding performance of William Carney left an indelible mark in the minds of his contemporaries. For his performance on the battlefield, the new Bedford uh, native was pr promoted to sergeant. And for his heroic performance, he was accorded the nation's highest me military medal, the Medal of Honor. But while he was the first African-American soldier to receive the award, he would have to wait nearly four decades to receive public recognition of his deed. Now, the second life example of black valor and also epitomizing the American pathways of race, I want to bring to your attention, basically took place at Chaffin's Farm, Virginia in 1864. Here's a, story, here's a photograph of Christian Fleetwood. Fleetwood, basically, he was born in Baltimore, Maryland in 1840 to Charles and Anna Fleetwood, both free persons. He received a public education from the Maryland Colonization Society and attended the all-black Ashman uh, Institute, which was later named Lincoln University in Pennsylvania. Before graduating from the institute, he basically he traveled to Liberia and Sierra Leone before returning to the United States in 1860. In August of 1863, 
The, Mar the Maryland native promptly ventured to nearby Camp Bernie, where he entered the ranks of Company G of the U.S. Colored Infantry's uh, 4th Regiment. As a sergeant major, Fleetwood and his, and his con compatriots basically saw their share of fighting with the U.S. Colored troops, uh, participating in some of the fiercest fighting of the Civil War. During, the, during late September of 1864, Fleetwood basically distinguished himself in the face of enemy fire during the Battle of Chaffin's Farm. New Market Heights, an area located southeast of, of Richmond. During critical moments in the skirmish, Fleetwood earned the Medal of Honor for saving the regimental colors without a scratch after the color bearer and most of the, most of the company had been killed or wounded. And he helped to basically deliver a pivotal uh, victory for the Union Army. For his efforts, basically, Fleetwood and 14 other black soldiers received me medals of honor for gallantry in battle. The reason why I mentioned Christian Fleetwood is that he, like so many Medal of Honor recipients, they had hoped that their basically acts of valor on the battlefield would lead to greater opportunity in the regular army. But these hopes were only stymied by post-war racism after the war. For example, in late 1865, Fleetwood applied for a commission as an officer in, in the regular army only to be told by his superiors uh, the basically that they were going to turn down his request. Undaunted by this, Fleetwood went home to Washington, D.C., where he continued to serve basically in the District of Columbia's National Guard, reaching the rank of major by the end of the century. What people don't know is that with Fleetwood, he would be at basically the, he would be in Atlanta at the, basically the, the Cotton States Exposition, where Booker T. Washington would make that famous speech at the end of the century, during that time, Fleetwood would also deliver an address where he, he talked about the plight of the African-American officer during this time. Um, he, he would talk very bitterly about his experiences. My next slide for you here, well, this is a slide of the, photo basically of the photographic exhibit put together by the renowned scholar W.E.B. Du Bois uh, of the living Medal of Honor recipients at the turn of the century. This is phenomenal because this was a photographic uh, exhibit that was uh, basically, it was, it was put on display in Paris in 1900. The, the, the purpose of the exhibit was to capture the full, basically, uh, complexities and also the multifaceted the portraits of black life as it lived in the United States at the time. And Du Bois picked up on the idea, what better way to exhibit some of the finer examples of African-American life than to have on display its, its Medal of Honor recipients. Now, in this, in this display that I show you, what's really fascinating to me is that among the Civil War veterans that are there in that picture, um, you see William Carney, uh, Powhatan Beatty, who's there also, um, uh, Alexander Kelly, but you also see Medal of Honor recipients from the Indian Wars, people like Benjamin Mays, who was up there in the, basically second to the, uh, second to the left, um, who's there in that bow tie. You also see basically Thomas Shaw, who's also down there at the bottom. 
Um, and then, if that's not enough, you also see John Denny, who's up there to the far left, the first person there standing. And then that's followed up by those who received the Medal of Honor in the Spanish-American War, Dennis Bell. I think that's a phenomenal display of basically of how much basically how basically African Americans defined courage during that time and how they valued it in the, basically in protecting the country's trust. Now, with that said, basically Black Valor took place in the Trans Mississippi West during the latter half of the 19th century. Here, this. Um, and I, I really got excited when I started basically researching and writing about this. This is a slide of a letter written by Emmanuel Stance. Stance, he was born in 1843. He grew up in Louisiana, and he basically worked for a short time as a sharecropper before making his way to a recruiting station where he joined Company F of the 9th Cavalry in October of 1866 at the tender age of 19. On May, on May 20th, 1870, Stance's name entered the annals of immortality when he, along with a small party of men from Company F, received orders from their company commander to leave Fort McCavitt and to advance 20 miles north toward Kickapoo uh, Creek in order to scout the activities of Apache Indians who had abducted basically children, two children two days earlier. The detachment of men had barely made their way half, halfway to their destination before they spotted a group of approximately 20 Indians driving a team of horses. At that point, the, the diminutive stance, he took command of the situation, quickly organizing the men into a line-mounted formation and charging the confused enemy, enemy forces until they captured nine of their horses. Now, after pursuing the enemy party into the hills that were located nearby, Stance and his men basically abandoned the attack and bivouacked for the night. Now, after deciding to return to Fort McCabot the following morning, the, 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 the patrol basically decamped and proceeded toward the, the post, but not before finding themselves facing a group of Indians who were intent on capturing a herd of government horses. And at that time, Stance, not to be outdone, again directed a concerted attack against the advancing Indians who appeared on his flank, despite encountering a desperate attempt made by the enemy to recover their horses. After a period of fighting, Stance and his men managed to stave off the, the enemy advance, forcing them to flee in confusion and maintain and sustaining minimal uh, injuries to his men and horses in the process. And as a result of Stance's inspired leadership, his commanding officer recommended the non-commissioned officer basically for the Medal of Honor. Now in the book, I describe the actions taken by Stance and his compatriots in the Trans-Mississippi West as elements and examples of frontier honor. And what I mean by this is that the physical setting of the post-Civil War, basically Southwest, along with one's character and one's word as bond assurances, these were very necessary elements of a special value system that was as, as invaluable as the stripes of rank 
basically one earned while serving in the West itself. Now, on the other hand, basically the defense of one's reputation also protected one from public ridicule, exploitation, and even death. Anything that infringed upon one's sense of dignity, uh, basically as a soldier or as an upstanding gentleman, was perceived not only as a threat in, to the existing military code of conduct, but also to the honor code that basically bound enlisted men and also non-commissioned officers together. These non-commissioned officers lived by that code in the Trans-Mississippi West. Now this next, this next slide is the headstone marker of Medal of Honor recipient Clinton Greaves. To me, Greaves is, very, is really interesting due to the fact that he grew up in Prince George's County and he also served with the famed 9th Cavalry, one of the celebrated Buffalo Soldier units that operated in New Mexico. In fact, this is what I get most of, basically most of the inquiries about, when anybody talks to me about this book, they, talk, they actually talk about Clinton Greaves. Because Greaves is very near and dear to basically New Mexico history and traditions that they, they hold dear. Greaves entered the army on the heels of the Civil War and exhibited the, the characteristics of that frontier honor that I described for you. In January of 1877, Greaves and a small group of troopers with the 9th Cavalry, along with three Navajo scouts, moved from Fort Bayard after receiving orders to search for Indian raiders who had been active in an area located 35 miles eastward from Fort Cummings. The soldiers, they, they aimed to suppress future attacks from the hostile uh, Apaches who posed a tremendous threat to the North New Mexico border. The detachment had barely left the military installation and had approached an area near the Florida mountains where they, they discovered an encampment of nearly 50 hostile Indians. The, the, troops, the troop was outnumbered. They basically approached, and when they found this, they basically approached the, the Apache Council hoping to negotiate peaceful terms, but this was not to be. The Apache warriors surrounded them, and with that, the troopers basically set out to lay down suppressive fire. When the shooting devolved to close quarter, hand-to-hand -hand combat, Greaves stood at the epicenter of this fighting. Using his empty, his empty carbine as a club, he beat off a band of, a, of attacking Apaches. By taking such a bold action, the five-foot-seven-inch non-commissioned officer created an opening that allowed his comrades to escape the nightmare. And during the half-hour course of action, Greaves and a detachment of soldiers killed five Indians and captured several rifles and 11 horses in the process. And for his actions, Greaves received the Medal of Honor in J July uh, of 1879. But official recognition of, of, of his brave loyalty and devotion to his fellow comrades at the front line that day would have to wait until months later. But here's the rub in all of this. When his superior officer requested that Greaves receive the Certificate of Merit along with the Medal of Honor for his heroism in southwestern uh, New Mexico, the recommendation became ensnarled in the red tape that was common with the, the 19th century army. Only after 
Only after General William Tecumseh Sherman basically interceded on his behalf did Greaves receive the War Department's official acknowledgement of his gallant deeds. Sometimes frontier honor predisposed Medal of Honor recipients to volatile confrontations with other soldiers who stood in the, in the ranks. Here's a photograph of John Denny. You saw one from, of him before. But he was also basically an Indian War Medal of Honor recipient. In September of 1879, Denny distinguished himself at Los Animas Canyon, New Mexico. But years later, John Denny, first sergeant, at the, later on, basically came to blows with his, one of his fellow uh, Ninth Cavalrymen after the enlisted man and cheated him, uh, basically cheated him of $3.75 owed to him. At the, hearing, basically, at the hearing, Galloway dis dispute the claim, uh, basically, by calling him a liar, the decorated non-commissioned officer, Denny, basically angrily retorted, you, excuse me, but you damn bastard, I'll knock your, I'll knock your goddamn head off. And at his court-martial that ensued afterwards, Denny defended his actions by appointing pointing to his exemplary military bearing, claiming, I always endeavored to perform my duties as a soldier. During any period while serving as a non-commissioned officer, I have taken every precaution practicable to preserve discipline. So discipline, basically army discipline, military discipline was deeply entwined with this idea of frontier honor. Anyone who infringed upon it, basically these, these soldiers felt emboldened to take action. And Denny exemplified that. Now, with the outbreak of the war with Spain, four black soldiers in the Spanish-American Spanish -American War used their guns to fight for dignity and honor on the field of battle, even though they were battling the federally sanctioned indignities of a racially segregated army and also the constant harassment from white citizens. Here's a picture of George Wanton. Wanton was basically born and raised in, New Patterson, in Patterson, New Jersey. But Wanton basically entered the 10th Cavalry in 1889 after serving over four years in the US Navy. During the, during the Battle of Tayabamanca, Cuba, in June of, uh, June of 1898, Wanton and three other soldiers basically staged a successful raid on a prison stockade that housed a company of captured Americans and freed the captured soldiers. And for their efforts, basically Wanton and also three other members of the 10th Cavalry were recognized and received commendations from their superior officers for the Medal of Honor, which was conferred upon them uh, during that period. But I, I add this picture here because Wanton later becomes one of the, he is put forward as an example of what black valor could be on the eve of World War I. In fact, he is there, um, he is there in New Jersey basically uh, uh, giving a, he is, he is there giving a speech to fellow uh, basically soldiers who are going to serve in the 92nd Division in in the First World War. Uh, he's presented in that light. So in a way, if you think about it, these Medal of Honor recipients basically 
carried, they, they basically paid it forward to the next generation. And this happened over and over again. Now, throughout the book, I basically demonstrate how official record acknowledgement of black valor more often than not would not take place until long after remains, after the remains of African-American heroes have returned home from battle and after several decades in the future. This was the case with Freddie Stowers. On, on, on September 28th, this is 1918, Stowers unit, Company C, 371st Infantry Regiment, 93rd Division, basically they were at basically uh, Hill 188, which was a key strategic point in the Hindenburg Line that lay near Bussy, basically Bussy Farm. Stowers and his men, basically, during that time, managed to maneuver through the, through the area nearly unscathed, and they thought that the enemy had long since basically left the area. In fact, when they encountered enemy combatants near the farm, the South Carolina native and his comrades heard their commanding officer basically issue a call for a ceasefire and saw them begin climbing over their dugouts, proclaiming their surrender. But to their consternation, Stowers and his men soon learned that this was not meant to be. Because as they moved to basically reciprocate that, that gesture, the enemy jumped back into their positions and, lay, and proceeded to lay down indiscriminate fire on the unsuspecting company, practically annihilating most of the unit's officers. Unfazed by this, however, Stowers, he stepped forward and provided inspired leadership for fellow members of his company spurring them forward in a desperate battle against the enemy position and the elements of the hill. With total disregard for his personal danger, he, fought, he basically moved his fellow soldiers toward the enemy position until the Germans dropped their weapons and, and staged a hasty retreat basically to the rear. And as a result, Stowers and his men basically seized Hill 188. They captured many German uh, prisoners, and they secured precious machine guns, rail, railroad cars, and enormous quantities of lumber and also supplies. In addition, during that time, they also managed to shoot down basically three German airplanes during their attack. However, Stowers would not live long enough to see the fruits of his courageous act. When the assault ended, he, along with 40% of his 200-man uh, company were basically brought down uh, during the fighting, gravely wounded by the machine gun fire. The actions taken by Stowers earned him many French honors from the Red Hand Division Commander, uh, General Mariano Gobey. This is another grave site. And as he was laid to rest in the Mosargan uh, American cemetery in France, and this is a picture of that, France would be his final destination. But the bravery exhibited by he and his men was of great significance because it, it, it took place during the final Allied offensive of World War I. For his distinguished action, Stowers received the Croix de Guerre, which was France's highest military decoration for fortitude on the field of battle. In most instances, his courageous exploits would have generated the same outpouring of praise from observers in the United States, but this was not the case. In fact, his, his, company com his eventual company commander, the person who was replaced, uh, his, 
who would place his, his company commander in the field, recommended him for the Medal of Honor, the Distinguished Service Cross. But the paperwork was lost. And it would take some, basically, it would take almost 80 years later before his country of birth would basically recognize him. This would only take place in 1991 with basically President, uh, basically President George H.W. Bush. Now, the same could be said for Henry Johnson. In May of 1918, the Oregon Forest basically prompted the courageous actions taken by Johnson, who at that time was a private with the 369th Infantry. Johnson and his fellow servicemen were standing guard at a small outpost near the German lines when Johnson heard what he thought was the shearing of barbed wire in the vicinity. Almost instantly, a raiding party, basically of almost 20 Germans, appeared in the, in the area, firing and wounding Johnson and, and one, of his, one of his compatriots. Undaunted, however, Johnson, who was known by his colleagues as basically Black Death, he, known for his intense fighting in France, returned immediate fire. Seeing his comrades in danger, he emptied his magazine of, of of his rifle before grabbing his bolo knife, a short, heavy weapon with a razor-sharp edge, the weight of, and it had the weight of a cleaver, and the point, basically the point of a butcher knife, armed only with that bolo, he basically fiercely engaged the Germans in a deadly hand-to-hand -hand combat. And with that, the Battle of Henry Johnson ensued. And this battle, by the way, was legendary. It would be one that reached, basically, it would reach back to the United States. It would be one that was recognized for generations to come by African Americans and also those who were thinking about military service. But it's the heroic actions that were taken by Johnson that had so stunned the German party that they promptly gathered up their dead and wounded before, before hastily fleeing the outposts altogether. But Johnson proceeded to press the attack a bit further using his empty rifle as a club and also throwing hand grenades at the fleeing enemy before being forced to yield to the severity of his own wounds. Shortly afterwards, Johnson was transferred to a French, to a French hospital where they convalesced, but not before the word of his act of bravery began to attract the attention of the French and American commanders throughout Europe. On May 20th, Johnson received the French highest military medal, the Croix de Guerre, from the, from the French Army commander, earning the distinction of being among the first American soldiers to receive such an honor in, in war. Now, Johnson was later dis, discharged from the Army, but his wounds left him permanently crippled, and they prevented him from being able to secure employment in his old, in his old position as a, a baggage, baggage handler penniless and denied a veteran's pension. He died a, desti as a, he died a destitute uh, alcoholic in, the, in July of 1929 at the age of 32 and was buried with full military honors in Arlington National Cemetery. Now, although he received the Purple Heart posthumously, the Medal of Honor still eluded him as his wartime deeds proceeded into the realms of mythology it would take basically veterans from that unit who would, base, who would travel to Albany, New York, 
pushing legislation, basically calling for his recognition. But this would only take place much later. In fact, it would only take place in the 21st century uh, when basically President Barack Obama at the behest of the New York Senator Charles Schumer and a host of prominent scholars basically would gather in the East Room of the White House where the nation's highest honor for valor was finally bestowed upon him. Now this ceremony was pregnant with meaning. Staff members and also honored guests looked on as the Command Sergeant Major Lewis um, Wilson of the New York National Guard had accepted the medal on behalf of his, the long since fallen soldier. On that fateful day, President Obama basically stated what the nation needed that, that the nation needed to express its gratitude even 97 years after the soldier's act of courage. And Obama basically stated, it takes our nation too long sometimes to say so. We have work to do as a nation to make sure that all of our heroes' stories are told. Now, this is basically followed up in, in the book by what I consider to be one of the signal changes in the the recognition, national recognition of this honor. And this would take place during the Second World War and the Korean War. Because I think that was a, this represents a signal change in the relationship between African Americans in uniform and the nation's ideas about courage. Okay, this is a picture of John Fox. John Fox uh, basically is, his story is poignant because he serves uh, in the 92nd Infantry Division in Europe during World War II, and then during some of the most some of the most severe fighting that takes place in Italy at the time, he as a as a young second lieutenant finds himself in an almost impossible situation where he's surrounded by the enemy. Right, so what does he do? He selflessly basically calls on indirect fire on his own position in order to save his men. And when this happens, and if you talk to any of the veterans who actually knew Fox, he was very unassuming, he was very humble. Um, they talk about him in very spirited ways. In fact, just a side story, um, I was here um, during the first, um, the first conference they held on African Americans in the Second World War, um, I was right here, and at, 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 uh, right here, and they had veterans who served in John Fox's unit who were out in the audience, and one of the uh, one of the veterans came up and started talking about his experiences, and he mentioned John Fox, and and upon mentioning him. He basically broke down and started, as he was recounting the story of Fox's bravery. That tells you, even then, even later on, I mean, his, the, the thing, that, the, thing, the inspirational act that he basically had done has still elicited such emotion among those he, he saved. Um, but that's just a side story. Another one here is Vernon Baker. Baker. Um, Baker's story is, is equally as poignant. Um, despite the fact that he himself had been wounded basically during this fighting in Italy, during one of the, the operations, 
um, he basically proceeded to take out one of the enemy's uh, defensive strongholds while saving his men, while basically sustaining injury to himself. Um, he ended up get, getting his men back safely to the rear. He is recognized during that time, and he is recognized by his, uh, by his company commander. And he, rec he basically, he, 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 he mentions him and, and also commendates him and, and requests that he receive the Distinguished Service Cross. Baker is one of the few African Americans of the war of the, of the Second World War who received the Distinguished Service Cross, but never was recognized. He was never basically recognized for or being awarded the publicly recognized as a Medal of Honor recipient. It would take years, decades into the future for this to happen. It would only happen in 1997 where he and six others would be, would be recognized, but he is the only one that's been, who, were, who was alive at that time to basically receive the honor. So I, I say this as a way of saying that for he and Fox and the five other comrades who distinguished themselves in action during the Second World War, the task of seizing what Vernon Baker himself basically described as the hero's mantle, it, it couldn't have been more daunting. Once they arrived in Europe and in Asia in the, in, in the early 1940s, they quickly understood and discovered that the fight for first-class citizenship had taken on new meaning once they stepped ashore. Why? Why is this? Well, because those who stood in the ranks of the segregated army at the time were labeled by official Washington and senior army commanders as unreliable soldiers and as soldiers who, who run away in the heat of battle even before they basically began to move into those active areas in order to engage the enemy. And in some ways, their mission was similar to the previously medal, basically recipients of valor. Like their predecessors, the war in Europe and Asia basically offered black servicemen like Vernon Baker and others the rare opportunity to carry guns, ammunition, and to strike back at their oppressors. Like their ancestors who saw the Confederate Army, the American Indian nations, the Spanish Empire, and also central armies of previous wars that threatened basically their existence, they came to regard Hitler, Mussolini, and Hirohito as representatives of their oppressors at home. But they also recognized and they quickly realized that they were being asked to pay a price that they would have to bear for all who lived under the threat of racism and class antagonism at home. And in many ways, and in many cases, like Baker, their acts of bravery would not re be recognized until nearly 50 years later. Now, let me move on. This is another picture of Baker. This is Baker receiving the Medal of Honor in 1997 from President William Clinton. And the thing about Baker is he was so humble, just I think like so many of them, that he felt like he had, um, it's almost as if he felt like he had, he had cheated death to a certain degree and he wished that many of, his, many of his comrades would have been up there with him to receive that. He was almost embarrassed to receive it, in fact. If you read his autobiography, he talks about how he was quite often basically stopped in the moment 
in the, by remembering some of his comrades who had fallen in battle. Um, so this is a photograph of Cornelius. This is a photograph taken during the very height of the Korean War. And it's a photograph of Cornelius Carlton, who was a Medal of Honor recipient uh, of, of, from the Korean War, and of his family with the Secretary of Army uh, in March of 1952. Carlton basically distinguished himself in battle when he, along with basically a platoon of the 24th Infantry's 3rd Battalion, attempted to capture a, a hill north of near the, the village of Chippery. During the 8th Army's Operation Pile Driver, they fell headlong into a heavily fortified Chinese uh, entrenchment manned by enemy soldiers who were armed with numerous heavy automatic weapons. As a result, they took tremendous casualties, losing their platoon leader in the process. And it was under these harrowing circumstances that Sergeant Cornelius Carlton basically stepped forward. The talented non-commissioned officer had just reported to the platoon just weeks after being assigned to the engineering service unit in Korea. But his leadership could skills were considerable, and they were soon recognized by his superiors. Not long after being placed with the, the, the unit, his second lieutenant had in fact recommended him for a battlefield commission. After learning that the platoon leader felt basically lay mortally wounded, Carlton basically took command of the beleaguered platoon and led them up the hill. After attempting to advance three times and suffering heavy casualties in the face of withering mortar, and also rifle fire, the West Virginia native basically single-handedly destroyed two Chinese positions and killed six enemy soldiers. All the while, Carlton exposed himself to heavy fire, sustaining wounds into his chest while advancing basically the, the attack. The, the war hero's actions inspired eyewitnesses who were present during the fighting that day. As one en enlisted man in the company recalled, Carlton was wounded in the chest, but he refused to be evacuated. He got the rest of the men together, and we started for the top. The enemy had good emplacements. We couldn't get to them. Grenades kept coming at us, and we were charged. We were chased back down again. Again, we tried to no luck. Sergeant Carlton basically said he was going to make it this time and yelled, let's go. I saw the sergeant basically go over the top and charge the bunker on the other side. He got the, the gun but was killed by a grenade. His selfless actions basically came at a tremendous cost for he later died from his wounds, but he saved most of the men in his platoon. And in March of 1952, he was accorded the, the, the Medal of Honor. But the, here's the thing about Carlton. Even in his death, the battle ensued over his legacy. Even though his, his remains basically were they, they basically traveled across seas and they, they, in order to be laid to rest in his hometown of Beckley, West Virginia. His parents demanded that he be basically reinterred with full military honors in Arlington National Cemetery. The response they received from official Washington left a lot to be desired, however. Army officials basically stated they did not offer to rebury the fallen GI at Arlington or any other uh, location because of an administrative oversight. But his family members told a different story. His brother later claimed they said it was an administrative error, but I say it was discrimination. 
the, the fight between Carlton's family members and the army over his, bury, his burial lingered over 40 years. In fact, in 2008, a group of white veterans from Beckley's American Legion post petitioned members of Congress urging them to address the apparent oversight. And that's the thing about this, is that even though it would take decades later for these men to be recognized, it would take the veterans organizations to mobilize and to demand from their basic members of Congress for these things, these acts to basically take place. So to, to make a long story short, in May of 2008, Korean War veterans and, and Carlton's surviving family members assembled for the reburial of Carlton's uh, remains at the National Cemetery. Among those who were in attendance were the Assistant Secretary of State, the, a local congressman, two army generals, and a full honor guard from Fort Knox, Kentucky. And while some in the audience gathered to commemorate the, the memory of a soldier who fought and died in a war that took place over 40 years ago, the fighting in this meeting may have been too distant to cause any misgivings about the past. But for others, Carlton's life and death basically led to a different, a different conclusion. For instance, a sergeant major who was present at the time, who was also the president of the 24th Infantry Association, commented, this guy should have had some kind of hero ceremony. If it had, if it had been a white soldier who won the Medal of Honor, someone would have come forward immediately. Now the last three slides that I want to show you, and I want to wrap this up, is basically of, the first one here is of, uh, basically of Dwight Johnson, who's receiving the Medal of Honor from President Lyndon Johnson, basically in 1968. And that's him right there, uh, basically second from the left, standing there. And then the, uh, and the other one is a young, basically Melvin Morris. And I want to conclude with Morris, but I'll go back to Johnson here. I think it's a fitting close to my talk today because for they, I think these two individuals signify how valor basically carried a quality that requires a constant re-evaluation of American democracy and how its meaning enveloped in ideas about race have been transformed in order to meet the challenges of the time periods in which the war and wars are waged. Whereas earlier in the book, I point out that black valor meant preserving one and a, a unit's flag, right? During the Civil War, it had referred to basically notions of frontier honor in the Indian fighting and had basically spelled upholding a unit's reputation during World Wars I, II, and also the Korean War. For basically for Melvin Johnson and also for, for Dwight Johnson and Melvin Morris, this bravery in the Vietnam War meant the physical well-being of one's comrades, saving them from serious injury and death. In their eyes and those of the 18 other African-American Medal of Honor recipients from the Vietnam War era, black and white blood both flowed from the same river of freedom. And all lives mattered in an increasingly racially uh, diversified yet gender-stratified armed forces. As a case in point, take Dwight Johnson there. For Johnson, the Vietnam War and its aftermath carried deadly consequences. In 1968, the Detroit, Michigan native had returned home only to struggle with his own inner demons. Drafted in the Army in 1967, 
Johnson was assigned as a, as a tank driver in, in, a, in an infantry company in uh, Vietnam. On the eve of the Tet Offensive of 1968, however, Johnson's performance during the battle of, in the Kantum uh, province was the stuff of legend. On January 15th, he and his platoon members were headed towards Dak Tho in the Central Highlands near the Cambodian border and the Ho Chi Minh Trail when they were ambushed by a battalion-sized North Vietnamese force. As, and the thing is, is that for many of them, as they basically crept closer to the Cambodian border and also to the Ho Chi Minh Trail, that's where they incurred the most, the fiercest enemy resistance. It's during this time that, that basically they, they found themselves ambushed. And as the minutes stretched into hours, the situation became increasingly tenuous for the defenders. During its initial contact, the enemy had destroyed several tanks in the process. However, Johnson promptly climbed out of his track and armed with a 45 caliber pistol, proceeded to kill several North Vietnamese soldiers before expending all of his ammunition. The 21-year-old GI then gathered himself and ran through heavy gunfire to one of the burning tanks, pulling the men out of the, out of the wreckage. And after returning to his track, he located a submachine gun and proceeded to hunt, basically hunt down the enemy on foot. At one point, he stood face to face with a communist soldier during which he shot and killed him at close range. Afterwards, Johnson returned to his track and continued firing on the enemy until the rest of his platoon arrived on the scene. By showing such concern for his fellow soldiers with complete disregard for his own safety and also acting so decisively in the face of the enemy, he was awarded the nation's highest award for valor in November of, 19, in November of 1968. But Johnson's ordeal was just beginning as he and others quickly realized that his actions taken during the Docto uh, campaign had taken its toll on the celebrated soldiers. After returning home and receiving the Medal of Honor, the troubled hero was widely sought, basically sought, he was a widely sought commodity with the likes of General William Westmoreland, the Army Chief of Staff, and the commander of U.S. forces in Vietnam, entertainment, entertainer Bob Hope, and also Detroit's chapter of the American uh, Legion, all clamoring for his attention. However, it was not long before Johnson's battlefield struggles resurfaced in his, his post-war life. First, he had gone into financial debt after writing bad checks and also missing several public appearances. Second, he suffered a series of health-related ailments. After undergoing a battery of medical uh, evaluations, military physicians at Valley Forge Army Hospital in Pennsylvania determined that Johnson suffered from psychiatric distress that stemmed from his military service in Vietnam. On a cool night, in April of 1961, his wartime struggles were brought to an end. During an attempt to rob an, a grocery store less than a, half, less than a mile from his Detroit home, the store manager shot and killed the, the war hero. And on May 6, the Vietnam veteran was, was buried with honors at Arlington National Cemetery. But as his body was being interred into the hollow grounds of the national gravesite, one of his childhood friends ironically remarked, they get quiet. 
it's like they don't have they, they don't have too much to say about what it was like over there. Maybe it's because they, they've killed people and they don't really know why they killed them. And Johnson, by the, by the way, Johnson's story becomes the stuff of literary, basically, it becomes one of literary uh, 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 action as well because there were a number of screenplays that were developed uh, that documented his life. And there's still, basically, questions about what happened to him. But for this, I want to go to the, my last several slides here. And it, this, is a, this is a photograph of Melvin Morris at the time he entered the Army in 1959. To date, the reason why I, ch I want to end with this one is because to date, Morris is the last African American to be recognized for bravery during the Vietnam War era. Go to this last slide. And, and this is a picture of basically President Obama basically bestowing the nation's highest basically medal of honor on Morris. In May of, 19, of, of 2014, President Obama placed a call to a former GI for an oversight committed by the United States government decades earlier. On the other, of the, uh, on the other end of that line basically stood Melvin Morris who was a former Vietnam War veteran who hailed from Port St. John, Florida. Born in 1942, Morris was originally from Oklahoma, and he had been a member of the State National Guard before basically joining the Army in 1959. He, a former Green Beret, Morris basically had served several tours in South Vietnam before he was, before he was wounded three times while recovering the, the body of a fallen comrade in the face of withering machine gun fire near a firefight near Ch basically Cha Lang in 1969. And for his gallantry in action, Morris received the Distinguished Service Cross in 1970. But receiving such an honor barely fazed the battle-hardened soldier. As he recalled years later, I never really did uh, worry about decorations. And this happens to be like one of the common refrains of all of these individuals that I researched and wrote about in my book. They never really worried about the decorations. Little did he realize it, but Morris would become one of the beneficiaries of the government's new policies for assessing courage under fire. In 2002, the Defense Department, at the behest of members of Congress, launched an investigation into the historic prejudice against Hispanic and Jews who served in the nation's military. They particularly focused on all of the re recipients who, rec who had previously been awarded the Distinguished Service Cross for acts of valor during World War II, but broadened their scope to include the Korean and Vietnam Wars. Among those who appeared on that list was the former staff sergeant who lived in Florida. Of Obama's call, Morris basically remembered, quote, I fell to my knees. I was so shocked. President Obama said he was sorry this didn't happen before. He said this should have happened 44 years ago. Not long afterwards, Morris basically appeared at the White House where a mass ceremony was held to honor 24 veterans, mostly of Hispanic and Jewish heritage, who had previously received the nation's second highest award for valor, but had not been recognized for the Medal of Honor until that moment. And as the nation's first African-American president pr placed the prestigious Medal of Honor 
around Martha's neck, past and present and future generations of soldiers who were present for the, the gathering were bearing witness to a new standard of honor that was coming into being, one that was deeply in, 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 enveloped in the timeless banner of freedom and was deeply embossed with the emblem of equality. And with that, the brotherhood of valor that was initially formed by those stalwarts that I pointed out to you before had introduced a new convert into their ranks. The full implication of how the new bonds of bravery will be translated into action by successive generations of Americans have yet to reveal themselves, however. Thank you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have just a few minutes for uh, questions and answers. Uh, does anybody want to get us started right here? Dr. Jefferson, thank you very much for your presentation. I noted that when the photograph of Freddie Stowers was on the screen, he was wearing a French helmet. Yes. In the research you made to come up with the book you have now published, did you relate the changes in attitudes of the French high command towards African Americans in US units as opposed to when they were transferred operationally to work under French command? Yes, yes, I, yes, I did. Um, the, the French, if you remember, if you think about basically the, the history of that war, the French were desperate to basically have personnel due to the fact that they had, they had incurred basically mutinies from their soldiers in that war, basically earlier in the war, and they welcomed basically African Americans into their ranks. At the same time, um, and this is at the time when basically General Pershing was very much dead set against basically the amalgamation of American troops into basically foreign armies. But he allowed basically that unit to be, to be placed in their ranks. The French had no problems with them and they saw them as servicemen. They saw them as, they saw them as soldiers and they treated them as such. The, 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 in fact, at the time when they were basically redeployed into the French ranks, the US Army basically relinquished, they took back their US, basically, they took back the US equipment, the US gear, and the French basically gave them theirs. And that's the reason why you saw him in all of the French, basically, regalia. Um, those soldiers in, that fought in the 369th, they, they're known as the Rattlesnake Regiment, the, the Hel basically the Harlem Hellfighters. They fought bravely, they fought valiantly. And the thing to remember is, Due to the fact that we're now undergoing this, this, I think we're also rediscovering and reconsidering what valor means in this day and time, they're going back and looking at those soldiers who stood in the ranks there to see if there are any other soldiers who should be recognized for the nation's highest award for valor. So this is how things have changed since then. But that's, that's what happened at, at that time. I do say that, and I talk about that in the book. I do talk about it. All right, we have one right up here in front. Uh, this afternoon we had the Asian Ameri American observers at the War College who talked about the 442nd uh, Japanese uh, regiment that was there. Was there a competition or camaraderie between the 
442nd and the African-American units like the 371st or the 369th in World War II? Um, that, that's a really good question. 442nd, uh, the most decorated unit in World War II. Um, they're basically, they're, and I say the most decorated unit, they have the most Medal of Honor recipients of any unit that, that fought in World War II. Um, there was no, there was no competition. What they knew, later on when, the, that's a good question because when the, later on when uh, basically uh, units that were, that were assigned to the 92nd Division when they were in Italy, they found out that the 42nd were going to come, they were coming, they're being redeployed into their area. They welcomed them. And it was sort of like, now that we have basically our full strength there, now we can really show what we can do. So it's, there was no competition. They just felt like this, now our strength is basically being joined and we can show exactly, um, we, we can show exactly what, what basically uh, uniform personnel of color can do if they're given the opportunity. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's give one more round of applause for Dr. Jefferson here. Thank you. Uh, just a few remarks from uh, Mr. Mangelsdorf, our director. Uh, so, uh, so, sir, thank you. You know, thank you. you've uh, you've really. I, I have to admit, I'm embarrassed to uh, to say that, that I first got involved in the army in the mid '80s. Right? So, some of the greatest leaders that I looked up to were black men, black NCOs mostly, and they talked about service in Vietnam, right? so they were older. I was you know, a fresh guy. I never considered the challenges that some of them went through to see people recognized. I never considered the difficulties of that, just in my ignorance and my naivety. Uh, but you have very gracefully laid out for us that uh, from Private Kearney on up to Sergeant Morris, throughout the history of the Army, a progression of thought uh, that has brought us to where we are today. And, and in, in doing so, you've done something that we kind of pride ourselves on here at USAHEC, which is telling the Army story one soldier at a time. And, and you have done that very well. Th and we thank you for that, sir. Thank you. In, uh, as is military tradition, we recognize excellence, often with the presentation of a coin. Uh, we have a special coin here at USAHEC uh, and we would present that to you as a small token Thank you. Uh, to remember tonight. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA, is the U.S. Army's archival collection. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about our upcoming events.